listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma, and I'm your host, Trish Glose. Craig Camp on the podcast today. He's the general manager at Troon Vineyard in the beautiful Applegate Valley of Southern Oregon. I called Craig a wine nerd at the beginning of this interview, and uh, he didn't get mad at me. In fact, he laughed and said, it's true. I am a wine nerd. He has devoted the majority of his life to wine and the wine industry. He grew up in an area where wine was not important. He says Pabst beer was important. But a trip overseas in college, he studied abroad in Europe, he got bitten hard by the wine bug. Uh, He came back home, worked for a company, direct import wine company for several years, and then off to Italy he went to learn more about wine production. In 2004, he came back to the States, to Oregon. In fact, he took over as president of Anne Ami Vineyards, and he said he really revolutionized winemaking and marketing there. Did the same thing for Cornerstone Cellars in Napa, but Oregon was calling his name. He noticed Troon was up for sale. He came in as general manager and really changed a lot. Cleaned up the business, cleaned up the vineyards. Troon is listed as biodynamic and regenerative organic certified. So we talk a lot about what that means and how he's not only trying to change the vineyards and make clean grapes and natural wine, he's also trying to change the culture around winemaking and giving back to Mother Nature and our planet. So we talk about that and why it's so important, and that's their mission. And he really lit up when we started talking about risotto. In fact, Craig says, Aborio is the Marilyn Monroe of rice. Love it. Here's Craig Kim. Checking out your website, and I mean this in the nicest way, you are a wine nerd. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. I, yes, I am. I love I, it. I love it. Charged. <laughs> um, and again, I mean that like, and I love wine nerds. I'm a, I'm a nerd myself. I don't know about wine okay. nerd, but just going through your website, I was like, I just got really, really excited for this interview. So. Oh, great. great. <laughs> um, Craig <laughs> Camp, general manager currently at Troon Vineyard in the beautiful Applegate Valley of Southern Oregon. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's very, it's very uh, exciting to be here. Uh, I know you've been in the area, so mm-hmm. you do know how pretty it is mm-hmm. <laughs> here. And uh, I'm looking out, out of my window now at uh, Grayback Mountain at 7,000 feet with its snow, snow-covered peak. And uh, so there's the Siskiyou Mountains surround us here. It's a beautiful place. Well, I think... Um... It always surprises people how beautiful Southern Oregon is. Yes, I've been here for, um, let's see, 2023. It will be 20 years. No, 21 years in June. So I've been here for a couple of decades. And I think people just kind of, especially when it comes to wine regions of Oregon, they don't really think about Southern Oregon for the most part, although we're, we're changing that little by little. But I think Southern Oregon surprises people how beautiful it is. Yes, I mean, of course, Willamette Valley has uh, dominated the uh, the fame of Oregon wine, mm-hmm. uh, rightfully so, for 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 many decades. So people are more uh, familiar with the rolling hills of the Willamette Valley than the the rugged mountains and, and terrain here in in the the Applegate Valley. And it's so funny, Craig, because Troon actually, you know, I I, I guess my love of wine came from this region because I was a reporter at a local TV station and I started doing stories on wineries and climate and just all sorts of different things with local wineries. And Troon was actually, Druid's Fluid 
was actually one of my first, you know, um, loves when it comes to red wine. In fact, it was called back then kind of the gateway to red right. wine, right? So right. I just, I, Trueness will always have a very special place in my heart. Well, Troon has a, an historic place here in the uh, in wine in Southern Oregon and in, in Oregon actually, mm -hmm. because uh, the name comes from Dick Troon, who planted the the farm here uh, with his wife Jinx in 1972. They sold grapes for a while and then started making wine in the late 70s. And uh, the Druid story is always one of the. This, we're not sure if this is true, but this is what we've been told is that as that one vintage Dick had a, a red wine that didn't finish fermenting. And so it was left a little, little sweet. And uh, the neighbors liked it so much he kept making it. But uh, those days are long gone. We took over in uh, 2016. Yep. And then uh, Brian and Denise White, the owners, came in in 2017. And we immediately trans, uh, you know, transform the property to biodynamic agriculture and regenerative agriculture yeah. and to make it only estate bottled wines. Yes. So today Druid's Fluid is uh, a very uh, wine of very uh, serious intention and it's a blend of the classic Rhone varieties which grow on our property. Yes, we're going to talk a lot about Troon um, because what you guys are doing out there is incredible. But um, I'm happy to say that the, the Druid's Fluid, I remember from long ago is long gone because now I don't think I could drink it because it's a little too no, right. sweet. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The market has uh, changed in those days. I think that was probably the right way to go, but not anymore. Yes. And in fact, you hear that story a lot in the Applegate, you know, folks growing grapes in the seventies and then kind of, you know, dabbling in winemaking. And then it's like, poof, winery, winery, winery. I mean, that's, you just hear that story a lot in Southern Oregon. Yeah, I mean now it's it's a it's a very substantial uh, uh, wine industry down here with several hundred wineries, uh, wineries that are selling. Like Troon, we sell most of our wine uh, outside of Oregon, and uh, and that's that's new. It used to be a more regional type market, right. and now there are wineries selling nationally and even internationally because we sell to Canada and other places. So cool! Congrats on that, um, Craig Camp. Where are you from originally? Well, I grew up uh, in the, on the border of uh, Illinois and Wisconsin around dairy farms. And uh, uh, so farming was part of my background. And, uh, you know, during college, um, I spent a semester in, in Europe. And and then part of that time was spent in France. And I felt, well, I should uh, probably taste wine while I'm here. I hear they make wine in France. Because it was, certainly was not part of my growing up, which was, I think, uh, it was pretty much past and uh, Manhattan's. Well, <laughs> so I want to talk about this because I did, yeah. I saw that on your, on your website, although, and also your accent is still, it's lingering. You've heard Wisconsin. That. You've, you've heard that, right? It's like lingering yeah. there. I love it. I love a Wisconsin accent, by the way. Um, you grew up in, in an area where wine wasn't really important. I mean, it just, no, not a thing. I don't remember anybody ever drinking wine when I was when I was growing up. It just wasn't wasn't part of the culture. Uh, it certainly is now, even in places like like Harvard, Illinois, where I grew up. But uh, no, it really was an experience during college. You know, that that time I spent in Europe, and uh, I would buy wines in the grocery stores there, and came back feeling incredibly sophisticated. 
and went to a store to buy some wine and realized I didn't know anything about it and bought a book. And, and here I am almost 40 years later. I mean, you <laughs> got bitten hard by the bug. Big time, big time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you did. What did you go to school to study? Journalism, actually, my first, first, yeah, my first years uh, out of college were spent at newspapers in the Chicago area. Well, that makes a lot of sense after looking at your website because you're also quite the writer. I mean, you, you write a lot. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, you, it's evident in in some of your blogs, which we'll talk about. So, okay. you're, what was the reasoning to go to Italy for that semester? It was Italy, right? Is that where you went? Well, it was. I, I, it was. Uh, I started off in Austria, okay. and I went to Italy to work later in, okay. in life, and. Uh, um, uh, and you know, it was I, I. It was just a spirit of adventure. A college student that spent all of my time in in, in Illinois, and as I wanted to uh, see the world, and and so uh, the university I went to Illinois State University, and they offered a program uh, of uh, study. So I went there for a semester in the summer, and uh, had a great time. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you bought this book on wine. What was it about the wine, the book? I mean, that just really the light bulb seemed to go off for you. Well, I, I think it was, you know, you, you would go to, it was, for, you know, for having real food uh, that was uh, kind of outside the, the uh, you know, the 50s, 60s American uh, diet, you know, and uh, and then being exposed to all these things. And the wine was just served with it as part part of the meal. And, and it was so exciting. I remember we went to this Weinstube uh, 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 outside of uh, uh, um, uh, Vienna up in the in the hills and and the pictures of wine and, and and we just had a just a fabulous time i love the whole experience the food and wine and then my first uh after my time in austria and germany i uh i entered france through strasbourg and and remember going to a weinstube there and just getting edelsvecker you know the local blonde uh, pitcher and I, it just it just struck me you know i guess i guess the whole the whole cultural aspect, the history, and just the excitement of, 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 of flavor, you know, flavorful food, flavorful wines, and uh, I, I was done for. Well, yeah, and I think also not probably growing up around it, you weren't really exposed yes. to it. So it was this whole new world of something yes. for you. Mm -hmm. um, yes. When you come back home, did things change? Like, were you like, this is, I need to pursue wine? Yeah, so uh, you know, I, like a lot of people, I started with uh, Alexis Bespalov's Signet Book of Wine, which was one of the few books around at that time, and then started reading everything I could lay my hands on, um, and then started actually started teaching a course on wine at the local community college, and and then got connected through uh, uh, made friends with some people that were in the wine business, and I just went cold turkey into the into the wine business. We started a company in uh, late 79 in Chicago, importing and distributing uh, domain burgundies, working with Becky Wasserman and people like that. Wow. Uh, it was total, we had no money. It was the kind of thing we just, uh, we launched, you could never do it today. <laughs> but yeah. but we were in a place where we were the only ones with, the, with these kind of wines at that period. So we started off with, with, with burgundies and expanded the rest of France. Uh, with Becky Wasterman and Christopher Canaan, and then Neil Emson in Italy for small estates at that time. Then I started going out to the West Coast and and finding wineries in California and Oregon. And we built a portfolio for the Midwest. And after I did that for 20 years, my partner wanted to sell. I didn't have money to buy him 
buy buy him out. Mm -hmm. So we sold to another company and I stayed there for five years. And when my contract was up, I went and moved to Italy for three years. Yeah. So you're talking, you're talking about the direct import wine company then, right? Direct import wine company. Okay. And then they were bought. No longer exists. (laughs) Right. It was bought by Paterno Imports. Correct. Um, I got the feeling reading this on your website that it wasn't, you didn't love that that it was bought by this company. No, it was going to a very, I mean, we were a very uh, small idealistic company working with idealistic people uh, that were very, very inspiring. And then that all of a sudden to be launched into what I would call commercial wine business, where it was, it was more about as they, as they would say in the trade of the time, moving boxes than the, than the quality of the wine. Yeah. I found that a very unrewarding uh, experience. So I guess I needed to go uh, decompress for a few years in Italy before I got refocused. <laughs> it's a nice place to decompress. No, right. I, I feel that too. You know, KTVL locally was owned by Freedom Broadcasting for years before Sinclair, massive company, media company, mm-hmm. bought it. Um, I don't remember the year. And I felt that too. Like just some of the things that Sinclair was making its stations do across the country, it just doesn't sit right with you, right? right. It just right. It doesn't feel so, good. And when the time came that I could get out, I got out. But it it, yeah. it, it takes, it, I think it takes some time, right? Yeah, I, I, I totally empathize with your position because, uh, you know, it, it's something you have to go through. You know, it's very difficult after you've built something up for, for years and then and then to see it uh, uh, transformed into something very different than the original vision is, is a, it was a difficult process. So, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it was a, a great learning process, like all, all of these things are, and you realize I really don't want to have anything to do with that side of the business. Yeah, that gave me goosebumps. Do you think if you had the money to buy that company way back when, do you think you'd still be with Direct Import Wine Company? Do you ever think about oh, that? Oh, probably, <laughs> probably. I mean, at that at that point in my life, that's that I'd invested so much time, and I didn't have the the vision. I'd spent, you know, a lot of time at wineries, obviously, and and with harvests all over the world, and um, but you know, take I guess I uh, going through that experience made me realize I really wanted to be on the production side, not the distribution side. Gotcha. So gotcha. Also. I am a strong believer. If people listen to this podcast, they hear me say it all the time. Things happen for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, and yes. if that didn't happen, you wouldn't have gone to Italy to study wine production. Right. Exactly. Yes. So, um, so yes, I mean, you have to, it, it, it's paying attention to what life is giving you. I think, you know, you have to uh, uh, learn and grow all the time. For sure. And yeah. And, and think about those um, bumps in the road. Um, right. Yes, that it is the road. It right? seems a long time ago now. This is this is well over twenty years ago. All this happened. So, <laughs> but all of these yeah. things helped you yeah. probably get to where you are today, and all of these steps along the way, right? It's the reason why you're at Troon. Right, right, and I, I think I'm kind of unique because I've had you know vineyard experience and and winemaking experience and and sales and marketing experience yeah. and and general administration experience. Too, so I kind of had this 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 background over the years that kind of touches the entire uh, range of things you have to do in a small company uh, like Troon. So it, it's, uh, uh, but I find that exciting. I wouldn't want to do just one thing anyway. Oh gosh, totally agree. <laughs> um, so you go to Italy in two thousand, I believe. That's what I wrote down to mm-hmm. study wine production. What 
was so significant about the few years you spent there? Well, I was, I'd been, the people I was, I went with and worked with, I actually knew before I went there because I'd been importing their wines and I wanted to, to be around Piemonte because of, it was, there was so much happening in, 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 in winemaking there. It was like a, a revolutionary area where you had everything from ultra traditional producers to ultra modern producers and and I, I was an opportunity over those three years to see that complete range of, of, of winemaking styles why those decisions were made uh how they grew the fruit and everything so it was like total immersion in this broad range of, of not only uh winemaking styles but varieties with Nebbiolo, Barbera, Dolcetto, Fresa, things like that. Mm-hmm. Lovely and then in 2004 you actually come to Oregon and work Yes. At a yeah. vineyard in the Willamette, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd been coming to Oregon uh, for, for wine since the early 80s. Uh, um, and because we represented wines out here. So I, I was really familiar with the area. And uh, there was a, a older uh, Oregon winery called Chateau Benoit mm-hmm. uh, that um, was purchased and, and they wanted to transform it. It became Anami. And so that was really my my job was to transform uh, from that old winery to the new winery, bring in new staff, do resign, and build up a, a totally new concept. So that was, I've, I've done that actually three times. Right. <laughs> and, and yeah. That's, so I, I think, and that reflects my kind of broad background. But this this project is very different because I feel it's very unique and it's a, uh, a you know, once in a career opportunity to do something that matters. I mean, you somewhat took at Anime Vineyards, you somewhat took this this vineyard, this winery, and completely changed the winemaking and the marketing side for them. Totally, totally. And and, and then and planted new vineyards up on uh, Shahalem Mountain. Okay, so walk me through this just a little bit. How does one do that? You walk in, you have this business, right? And it's like, where do you start to to completely start changing things? Well, you know, the problem with agriculture is it's hard to change things quickly. Right. Uh, every time you come into a winery, you're going to have old inventory that's, that doesn't uh, uh, represent what you're trying to achieve. But the economics being what they 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 are, you have to uh, find a way to resolve that old inventory problem. And that's the hardest part. I mean, you know, the ideas of, of, of how to farm, how to make wine, uh, and 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 market good wine is a different problem than selling that old that old inventory. So that that's the struggle when you take over a, mm-hmm. a new operate an operation that's been in existence. Um, but then after about three or four years, again again uh, these things happen slowly. You, you you arrive at the point where I, I I guess I would call it the starting line, where every all the old inventory is gone. You've got new staff in. You've got your you know your new uh, winemaking equipment. Vineyards are are farmed the way you want, and then you can start moving forward. And and we're really at that point now uh, with with Troon. I mm-hmm. feel that you know the. With the 1920 vintage, we crossed the line and, and really moved into the new era. So you have to have a lot of patience. You have to, if you're going to be in farming, you better be a patient person because 
<laughs> you know, we're plant you plant you plant grapevines and you don't get fruit for three years right. and you know really top quality fruit for seven or eight. So don't it's not it's not for someone who needs immediate gratification. And this probably sounds like a totally no shit statement, but the the product also has to be really good if you're gonna market this. What is inside yes. the bottle has to be incredible. Yes, yes. I mean there it when I first got into wine, there were very, you know, there weren't a lot of great wines in the world. It was, it was mostly French. There was, there was starting to emerge uh, out of Italy and then the West Coast, of the United States, and of course Australia and so forth. But, but now there's great wines made all over the world, right? Everywhere, you know, and and of not and, and exceptional wines, and often at, at at very competitive prices. So if you're not making a, a wine that that uh, that has some individual character. And, and quality, you can't really compete. For sure. So at Anime Vineyards, you you essentially kind of Mary Poppins this. You come in and you change everything and then you take off on your magic umbrella to another another winery in Napa and right. do the same thing there. Yeah, Napa Valley, um, Cornerstone Cellars. It was the proverbial offer you couldn't re- refuse. Yeah. And uh, uh I guess I was on still on an exploratory mission. I spent a lot of time working with Nebbiolo in Italy and then Pinot Noir, uh, of course, in the Willamette Valley. And the idea of uh, taking out a Cabernet Sauvignon project was uh, enticing. And they had they had some big plans. And uh, uh, it was, so uh, it was an interesting period. Uh, I, you know, I really wanted to get back to Oregon after I'd been down there a few years. I really? missed the the culture and the experience. When I was at Anami, I was buying uh, uh, fruit down here. I was buying Syrah and Viognier. Uh, so I'd had my eye on the area. And the idea, I guess it was like, I was looking for a totally different experience in Napa. Napa, uh, the fruit is so expensive, it makes it very difficult to to really experiment with it because it's, the risk becomes so so high there's a so there's a lot of pressure to conform to kind of the standard commercial style well where here you're able to explore experiment and really push the envelope as, as, as to what you can make and, and and unique blends and 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 you know different types of sparkling wines things that would be very difficult to do in in Napa I wanted to get back to that so um when the opportunity came here uh I uh uh resist well sure and i want to talk about that but from willamette to napa and i know all varieties are different but how different are they for instance from pinot to this cabernet sauvignon project that you are doing at cornerstone cellars like how how different i mean do you have to completely like shift your brain right yeah it's a total total brain you know it's a total shift it's a total opposite with with pinot noir you have a early ripening thin skin grape with not a lot of tannin and and with cabernet you have a late ripening thick skin grape with a lot of uh uh with a lot of tannin and so i mean that's i think that the experience with nebbiolo really helped me there in in trying to work with tannins and so forth because that's also a very tannic grape but it, it's just a, it's a it, the culture is is different you know um the, the, the land is so expensive, everything's, uh, it's just a different culture. So it's not only working with different grapes, it's a different culture. So you're, the frustrating part I think about Napa and Cabernet was it was so expensive to produce the wines that the, that the wines you were selling were very expensive. Right. 
And, and I think selling very expensive wine is not a very interesting thing to do. Well, I mean, I'm in that category of, I can't afford expensive wine. So I do look for, and you, I think you, there's certain bottles where you're like, yes, I am going to spend this much on this, this bottle of wine, but there should be, in my opinion, affordable wine out there. There, I mean, there is, but it's like, you, you have to make it accessible. If we want to sell wine, you have to make it accessible. Uh, this is our goal. And this is one reason we kept making Druid's Fluid is, is that gave us a red and a white wine that we could make uh, from uh, the blend any way we wanted in a year to make the best wine possible. Yeah. And that way we are able to keep the, keep the price down. And, and, and to me, that's very important because I mean, it's not an inexpensive wine. It's, I guess we consider it's, it's about $25 now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, for most people, that's an expensive wine. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. we have that, that we sometimes forget that in the industry where we're around a lot of, a lot of expensive wines and you start you know, 50 and $60 as normal wine, but this is not what the wine market is. For most people, $25 is what they buy for a special occasion. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's important to keep that in mind. And uh, so our goal is to offer as much quality as, as possible in every price point. I love that. And there is a difference between cheap and inexpensive. Right, right, for sure. Right. If you're, you know, Oregon is not a good place to make cheap wine. You're always, California and, and Washington will always be able to outgun us because they're able to make, make, you know, grow much higher, get much higher yields. Uh, they're able to mechanize it. Uh, uh, their weather is more consistent than ours. So there's no way we can compete on that level. So uh, Oregon is going to be focused on, 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 on quality for money. A, a ratio so it's but it's never going to be cheap but i kind of like that about oregon to be yes i, I do too <laughs> so yeah. you're um you're at cornerstone sellers is that when you get the call for troon like how how did that play out well i decided that i'd really had enough and i wanted to to, to get back to oregon as did my wife whose twin sister lives in oregon Aww. so uh, uh so we uh uh troon had been for sale for a long time and the, the current owner was having trouble selling it. And and I, I kind of looked at it, I guess, as a temporary project to say, well, this will get me back up in Oregon. I'll put this put this winery together, help him sell it, and uh and then and then move north. But it, it didn't take me very long to realize what a special property this was. Mm-hmm. And uh um, so we started working on on you know putting things together even before uh the whites came in and and purchased it. So when the whites uh, Brian and Denise um, decided to uh, buy the winery and the vineyard. Um, I agreed uh, to stay on as part of the part of the deal because I felt it was such it's such a special place and 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 and, a, and really like a once in a career project to be able to take a a what I think is a is a is a premium vineyard site, restore it, uh, and bring in regenerative agriculture and and improve the wines is is a it's just a incredibly rewarding project. So was that your idea then the biodynamic and regenerative organic side yes. of it? Okay. Okay. Yes. yes. Think- I felt, I felt that, uh, you know, you, you look at a problem, you know, the vineyard had a lot of problems and you needed a, a framework to, to, uh, to approach those problems. And I had enough experience with the biodynamics by then that I knew it would work. So okay. biodynamics, you know, is very complex. There's a lot of parts to it. 
some of them work, some of them don't. We just don't know which ones. So we approached it as 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 you know, we went totally in on biodynamics and, and still practice it, and it has uh, produced the the uh, desired uh, effects. Do you think the whites were intrigued by this vineyard? I mean, how much how much of Craig Camp did were they like? Yes, we want in because he's here. Be honest. Yeah, well, I think that was <laughs> I think that was a part of it. Yeah, we had yeah. there hadn't been. Uh, a team here or a, a beginning of a team uh, to for them to come in and just buy a property would have been and then try to attract people would have been very difficult. Right. And and, you know, uh, Brian's has been a very successful businessman in Texas. Uh, he's a doctor and he's been involved in very, you know a lot of medical projects. And he was very involved in that at that period. So even that he would, you know, he, he could only spend so much time. Uh, here at that point. Right. And so luckily they have you to kind of take the charge, take the lead on all of this. Um, explain to me biodynamic and regenerative. Like, and well, first let's explain it. Like, what is this? Because this gets tossed around a lot. Right. Right. Well, let's, uh, let's start with organic, okay. or, you know, USDA organic, organic agriculture is them, the government, which is a legal standard telling you what you can't do, but it doesn't tell you what you can do. You know, so you, you cannot use this, you cannot use that, you cannot do that. Right. That's organic agriculture. Biodynamic agriculture, there's several aspects to it. You know, it was uh, uh, created, uh, the idea was brought up by Rud Rudolf Steiner in the early 1920s in, in, in Germany. And his, his aspect had a spiritual component to it. That was his his background, he was uh, anthroposophy, is, 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 was his background. And so he, he had this different spiritual approach to, to nature that he was trying to integrate in this. But I, it's really important to understand that period. This was right you know, in between the wars in Germany and the culture was just a disaster there after, after World War I, you know, millions had died, there, people were looking for answers. And so um, a group of farmers were very concerned about these chemicals that were being used after the war. And they, they asked uh, Steiner to give a, a series of lectures. So he gave eight lectures on kind of combining his spiritual uh, philosophy with traditional homeopathic agriculture farming that he'd learned about uh, growing up and from a, a homeopath that he worked with. So, but then he died a year later. So, so Rudolf Steiner, which everybody talks about as biodynamics, he just gave this one series of lectures. And that at the end of that lecture, he, he said, now you have to go out and test these things and see what works. And, and that's what happened at that point. And so, so a, a whole group of people now from multiple generations has really transformed biodynamics. So I say there, there, there's like two, two groups in biodynamics, one who really are deeply into the spiritual aspect and those like us, which I would call practical biodynamic uh, farmers, where we feel that um, that there's science behind why these things work. We're trying to apply science to it. And I look at biodynamics as a proactive probiotic program. Everybody knows probiotics now, it's in all the stores. So most of what we're doing in biodynamics is involved around various types of ferments, composting, uh, compo you know, fermenting various plants to make sprays, things like that. So you're with all these ferments, what you're doing then is, is introducing new 
microbiology back into the soil. And what we're trying to do through all of our process is to, to let the natural system work the way nature designed it. Mm -hmm. So we focus first on the soil. If you have a healthy natural soil system that allows the plant to grow in a natural system to the way it evolved. So that's our goal is to simply make all of these systems work naturally. And that's, and that's biodynamics. That's okay. really the focus of that is building these natural systems. And then uh, regenerative. So we were the second winery in the world to begin, become regenerative organic certified. And uh, it's a new um, um, certification. So obviously, you have to be organic to even apply. But then regener regenerative applies across a broad range of things. First of all, of course, on, on your soils, on your plants, you actually have to not just not do bad things you actually have to show you're making things better so that's the regenerative part so we have to submit soil samples and show that we are increasing organic matter that we are increasing carbon sequestration and and, and so forth and then there's so they divide it into pillars so that's the, the the farm pillar then there's the human pillar and so we we had to go through a whole social responsibility training and 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 you know create groups within our small company to take these trainings to make sure that people knew how to communicate and that everybody would had insurance and they were getting paid fairly and they worked in a fear-free environment and so forth. So that's the social, social aspect. And the last one we're completing now is the animal welfare because we have sheep and chickens and dogs and things like that as part of our uh, biodynamic farming. Sounds like a lot of work. Uh, it's a lot of work, but uh, our goal is, see, is that uh, we believe that certifications uh, are a way for us to communicate what we do, to tell the consumer that, that this is this is different and this is why it's different. And, you know, we have 100 acres here, uh, 100 acres, our farming here is not going to change the world by itself. We need to get other people uh, to farm the way we are. And we feel by getting these certifications and putting them on our, our labels and showing people that you can make a viable business in a regenerative, on a regenerative farm is important to getting that message out. Rising tide, right? I mean. Yes, exactly. Yes. And all of this equals essentially natural wine in the bottle. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a problematic term because there's no real definition for it, Right. but we are, you know, our winemaker, Nate Wall, is an exceptional winemaker, but believes in, in minimalist winemaking. So our goal is, uh, uh, we work with our, our director of agriculture, Garrett Long, who has a, he has a master's in science from uh, soil science from UC Davis. So even with all this stuff, you know, we're doing, they both have master's degrees. We're both deeply involved in, in the science of it and then documenting that, that you know, right. what we do. So our goal by having, putting all this work into the vineyard is to have pristine fruit when it comes in. And that's the secret to making natural wine is you need this very, very clean fruit. And, and that's what we're able to achieve in the vineyard. So in, in the cellar, we, we don't add yeast, we don't add enzymes, we don't add any of these products. In fact, we have ingredient labeling on our, all our wines. And, and the ingredients are, uh, uh, you know, estate, biodynamic, organic grapes, and minimum effective sulfites. So we had a small amount of sulfites pr just prior to bottling, just to give the wine a little stability. So why go through all of this, the training, the the soil sampling, the testing, the submitting, all of these things? Is it 
to make great wine? Is it to give back to mother nature? Is it all of the above? It's definitely all of the above. I think, you know, our, 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 our mission is to make great wine, uh, and, but also to make great wine of a place. So we want that, you know, we, by farming this way, we want to let the vineyard show through and, and the, the unique character of this piece of earth and, and it makes a wine in a certain way. And so by farming this way and making this one, making wine this way, we're allowing that to, to show through. Well, just in conversations that I've had with winemakers and other folks in the wine business, just really across the state, there are local wineries who are starting bit by bit to do things in the biodynamic category. Um, protecting, you know, giving back to the soil a little bit. And then there's other winemakers out there who are looking at Southern Oregon for certain practices and saying, I want those grapes specifically because of all of these techniques and um, initiatives that are happening. Right. And, you know, and, and we've been getting a lot of national, even international right. attention. You know, we just were nominated as an American winery of the year by the wine enthusiast and, uh, uh, we've been featured in uh, a French viticultural magazine, an Italian viticultural magazine, uh, recently in the South, a South African viticultural magazine. So, you know, we're spreading the the the, um, the word about not only farming, but about Southern Oregon. So that's very much our goal. I believe it's a unique place to 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 make wine because we're transitional. I think transitional areas are interesting places to to make wine. So you know we are uh, cooler and 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 that you know we're warmer and drier than the Willamette Valley and 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 cooler and wetter than Napa Valley. So we're in between there, and we get these. It's a really distinct growing period here because at our altitude and this far north you may you know mix for a more compacted growing season shorter season but because our days are so long here in the summer and there's no fog or anything in the summer we're able to ripen these varieties fully because we have this uh these very long days of photosynthesis but then in october when we're harvesting the days get extremely short so and the nights get very cold so that slows down ripening it brings the sugar accumulation almost to a stop so we're able to to let the grapes hang on the vine and develop flavor and ripen their tannins without the sugars getting too high. So the Applegate gives you natural wines that are naturally high in acid and moderate in alcohol. And that to me is, is critical. That's the style of wine we want to make, but you have to, you have to grow in a place that will naturally give you that. It was just meant to be. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> um, how does that feel? I hate, I hate when journalists ask questions, how does it feel? Um, they're bad, but how does it feel for you looking back all the changes that you've done at Troon? Now you're getting all of this recognition. I mean, it's kind of like a hair flip moment. Well, it is. Yes. I, uh, yeah, I mean, we're all extremely, uh, proud of what we've achieved. We have a, just an amazing, amazing team here that is just mm -hmm. totally committed to what, what we're doing. I think that, you know, this is a point that people sometimes miss when we talk about biodynamics and things like this is that yeah, everybody talks about the plants and the soils and things like that and the, and the changes it makes, but it also changes the people. It changes the culture. When you're, when you're deeply involved in, in this type of project that has meaning, uh, it, it changes the way everyone feels about their work and how they interact with each other and creates a different type of company culture. 
so true. My last visit out to Troon, I got a little tour. You guys are doing some nerdy, nerdy things out there. Oh, uh, we're soil. we're pretty pretty serious nerds here. <laughs> this is a, this is, you should hear some of the conversations. <laughs> I mean, I got to see the soil, some of the soils, um, and the worms, and all just mm -hmm. all the nerdy things that you guys are doing out at Troon. But it is so fascinating because. It's all, you know, in this like circle of life, right? All of it is done right. for a reason. There's intent behind all of it from the, is it the radishes that you guys plant? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. The daikon. 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 Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You plant daikon. So we're a, a no-till, uh, uh, you know, we don't want to till up the soils. Right. So um, we'll plant daikon in, in between the rows because the daikon is, grows, you know, three, four feet deep if you let it go. And so we cultivate by using radishes, basically, and yeah. things like that. So instead of using a disc and a tractor, we uh, uh, grow daikon in there and then it, and it dies and then puts, puts that nutrition back into the soil as it decomposes, but it also leaves a hole in the ground for other, th other life to move through. Fantastic. Um, what are you doing for the ground squirrels? Because those little boogers, mm. There, we're a little war. We are, if you look around, we have uh, raptor perches everywhere, owl boxes everywhere. Uh, and and one of the one of the great things about this type of farming is it brings all sorts of wildlife back. So now we have, we didn't see it, but we have all sorts of hawks and eagles and and and, and now owls in the owl boxes. And and they, they are, uh, their job is to take care of the ground squirrels. And they do a really good job at it. They do. They do a good job. Yes. Yeah. I need I need an owl box in my backyard for sure. Yeah, those little punks, yeah. ground squirrels are the worst. <laughs> they are the worst. They're, they're, every area has their curse, and uh, the Ugh. ground squirrels is, and it, and it's a challenge for us as no till because it does you know they give us some more homes and things like that. So, but we we don't really don't. I mean, we can't poison animals and things like that. We first of all we don't want to. We're trying to create a natural system. They're part <laughs> right. of the natural system. We don't want to eliminate them. We want to just control them, and, uh, and they're more—they're more a threat for us when you first plant. Uh, they can—they can kill a vine by eating its roots. So we first plant it, but a mature vine, they can't really do too much to. Okay. Well, maybe I'll plant some mature vines in my backyard. Get rid of right, those ground squirrels. Ugh. Um, do you look back at what Troon looked like when you showed up to what it looks like now, and it's just like. It's it's unrecognizable. The only yeah. thing, the only thing that you would could tell is the same are the buildings that are here. Mm -hmm. Which, by the but, way, I was going to mention when you're driving into the Applegate, um, Troon's not the first, but it's when you when you like come on that road and you hit that stop sign or maybe not a stop sign depending on what direction you're coming from. It's that there it is. Like there's this beautiful tasting room um, that was built years ago, but it's definitely a landmark in the Applegate. It is. It is a very distinctive kind of a Tuscan, uh, uh, style building. So it does stands out in the area. For sure. Um, have you been doing writing blogs? Like I know there's, I guess, articles for lack of a better term on your website, things from like, you know, explaining natural wine to the weather, to the water, nerdy stuff, your travels, other news you put on right. there. Um, have you been doing that for a long time? Oh, yes. I, I, I think I started writing it online around 2000. Mm -hmm. So, okay. And then I don't think, think it was called blogging then. <laughs> I think it was, you know, so I was, I was one of the first, I guess, wine bloggers. Nice. It okay. was even in a trivia. They had a wine trivia game for Master Sommelier's and 
and said, asked, you know, that I was the answer to one of the questions. <laughs> no way. That's yeah. like, that's a level of success for me. When you're the answer <laughs> to a question in like a trivia yeah. game, that's, that's yeah. a level of success. Yeah. Well, speaking about your website, um, I clicked on something called the risotto lesson. Someone yes. likes risotto. Yes, I do. That's a, that is a, uh, a remnant of my time in, in Italy. That's for sure. Okay. You know, I was living up in the, the rice area. And so I've got, I got a big indoctrination into, into risotto. And I actually wrote that originally when I was in Italy, I was writing for a, a website at the time that was uh, a message board called egullet.com, which was huge. I mean, it was like, you know, like millions of people. I mean, it's a technology that doesn't even exist anymore. But, uh, um, uh, and I was, so I was the Italian uh, uh, wine and food uh, uh, manager nice. for the site. And uh, so I would write about food and wine. And that was one of, from the, one of the articles I wrote at the time. Um, I want to quote you here. You say... Aborio, which is the rice that is used in risotto. Aborio is the Marilyn Monroe of rice, very amply endowed with the outer layer of starch that melts away, but is a little light on the inner hard starch that gives bite to each kernel of rice. I love yes. that. That's so good. <laughs> 20 years ago, <laughs> 20 years ago, I wrote that. So. What? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I always recommend using carnaroli. Uh, because it's much, it's much, uh, harder to overcook and you mm. can, it's easier to keep al dente, uh, which, which you want in a true Italian style risotto, which still has, should have a little, little bite. Uh, bite al dente. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you so actually, I, I recommend finding carnoli and you can find gray ones on Amazon if you can't okay. find it. Before. Well, you actually mentioned in this article, um, thank you for saying you can actually really overcook risotto and it's just it turns into mush it's like oatmeal yeah it, it's actually one of the dishes that's it's you often get better risotto at home than you do in a restaurant because it takes it takes a certain amount of time to cook risotto which makes it tough in a restaurant situation sure so they tend they tend to pre-cook it and then finish it uh where where uh, at home you can sit there actually it's therapeutic to make risotto you have to stand there and stir it for the for the 20 minutes and uh uh uh, you always feel better after stirring risotto for 20 minutes. I think there's a chef who said you don't have, there's like an old Italian saying, you don't have to salt your risotto because the sweat from your brow will season it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, super funny. You also suggest broth instead of stock. Yeah. Yeah. So the, 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 usually they'll make it with a, a very simple bone, bone broth. Right without without a lot of other vegetables and things in it because the the thing is when you're when you're making risotto and you're using a a broth you're you're you or you know stock you're you're reducing it dramatically mm -hmm. and it's pretty easy to over flavor something that's why you don't use salt in the in the broth uh, before you're cooking it because you're going to reduce that salt that broth down so much it will constantly you'll, you'll lose control of the amount of salt in the dish so you salt separately for sure um, risotto is one of my favorite things to make because of that reason, because you have to uh, pay attention to it, mm -hmm. right? You can't like stir and then right. walk away. Um, right. and then you can just like, you can drink wine while you're making a risotto, <laughs> which you right. also suggest. 
Yes, I always make make that mushroom risotto uh, uh, after our last uh, pick of the season uh, of the harvest every year. We have our, get the team together and have a risotto dinner with some, uh, drink some old uh, Barolos out of my cellar and celebrate. Um, I'd love to be there. Thanks. Um, yeah, I'll show. I'll show <laughs> this year. Well, and especially every time I I do a mushroom hunt, I always make risotto with my with my. Friends. Well, that's the thing. It's pretty exciting around around Oregon. This area is that the, the, there's some pretty fabulous mushrooms to be found. Oh man, the best! Absolutely the best. Um, so the recipe does exist on your website. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it is. I just love how detailed you are with it. You suggest certain butters, you suggest certain arborio rice, you have, um, you know, a recipe for the stock. I mean, you just went to town with this risotto. Well, you, you did say I was a geek. So <laughs> <laughs> there you go. In a nice way in a nice way. <laughs> risotto geek too. But, um, I did get excited when I was doing my research on you and I see the risotto lesson and I'm just like, what click. And I was just like, the angels started on your on your risotto um yeah i, I said I, I wrote that it's over 20 years now and i think uh i left it in there because it was it took so much work to <laughs> keep it in there i can imagine your journalism for sure is showing <laughs> in that in that article um we're gonna wrap up just a little bit um but being the the wine food nerd you are like me um are you happy i guess in this area in southern oregon and all the things that it has to offer because i always say we could if southern oregon broke off and we started drifting out into the ocean we would be fine we would be totally fine yeah i mean it's an amazing area you know as a kid who grew up in the flatlands of uh, northern illinois the mountains and the ocean never uh uh, never i never tire of it Uh, Just got back from a weekend out of Brookings, and and uh, you know it's just a it's just amazing area. You know, a couple of hours you're up a Crater Lake in the snow, and yep. drive a couple hours the other way you're on the coast in the sun, and it's just a fabulous fabulous place to live. It's an amazing place to grow grapes, which is what brought me here. Yeah, and uh, and I you know it's 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 a pl- if you love the outdoors and natural beauty, it's hard to think of a better place to live. I, I miss aspects of, you know, San Francisco we used to have, you know, season tickets to the opera and things like that, but it's a trade-off, you know, you can't, sure. can't do all. Sure. And um, you were saying wine enthusiasts. I mean, they also recognized this region as one of yes, the, the best. Yes, the Valley was not in this region too. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it's very rewarding to see this kind of attention coming to an area that uh, just a few years ago, people barely knew existed. Well, on behalf of wine drinkers and lovers out there. Thank you for all of the work that you're doing, not only to, you know, increase the quality of wine, but also help, help planet earth a little bit. Thank you. That is our mission. Yeah. Well, it's, it's obvious. And I would suggest if people have not been to Troon, if you're making a trip out to Southern Oregon, you have to go by there, go by there, drink the wine and see all the nerdy stuff you guys are doing. Because it's fascinating. We'll, we'll, we'll take you on a walk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, Craig Camp, we're going to wrap up and get to the final three. Best advice you've ever been given? Well, I thought about it. I don't know if it's so much advice is, 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 is one thing, but being inspired by the way certain people live their, their lives. You know, I, I would certainly go back to uh, my father, who was always so open-minded and interested and, and, you know, never tired of learning new things and going places. But then, you know, uh, for the wine side of thing, you know, Becky Wasserman, 
was a huge and burgundy was a huge influence and and how she tasted and how she thought about the farming and and uh neil empson in italy christopher canan bordeaux and then you know in california josh jensen who unfortunately just passed away uh this year from Clara and and uh people like that you know there's this range of people that have inspired me over the years and, and but not i don't know if they it was like nobody said like one phrase it was like just the way they live their lives and thought and their philosophy was inspiring perfect i love that answer um what's your happy place uh the vineyard <laughs> that's a that's an easy one there's nothing nothing better than than walking through the vineyard mm. I love that. Um, and then in all things, I may know this answer in all things, food and drink, what do you crave? Uh, uh, a combination of authenticity and balance. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I like things that taste, uh, 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 have a unique character, but that, 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 that there's a harmony to it, that, uh, you, you, you know, that all the flavors are balanced and, and, and you, you can experience them all, not one thing dominates that there's a elegance and refinement, um, and whether it's fruit or wine or risotto mm -hmm. or, or whatever, I, I like, I like, a, that, that authenticity and balance. Balance. So, so important in all things that we consume. Um, Craig Camp, you have been absolutely delightful. Thank you for sharing your story and your journey to Troon Vineyard. Um, so thankful that you're here in Southern Oregon. Oh, thank you. I mean, this has been great fun. I can talk about wine and risotto and farming for an unlimited amount of time. Okay, deal. So um, next time I come out to Troon, I'm going to bug you and you're going to sit and have like at least a half a glass of wine with me or a full one. You twist my arm. <laughs> Ah, oh, Craig Camp, thank you so much. Um, I hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma with me, Trish Close. You can watch this podcast and subscribe on my YouTube channel. Just search Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma. You can also listen and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts.